Welcome to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series features founders, investors, and legal talent that will help you embrace technology and transform your organization for a better future. This series is hosted by Natalie Pierce, the chair of Gunderson Detmer's Labor and Employment Law Practice. Natalie and her guests are committed to helping you develop new playbooks to elevate your game. Hi, this is Natalie, your host for the Future Work Playbook. We are into our third episode of season five dedicated to the rise of generative AI and the influential pervasiveness across technology and across all industries. If you haven't had the chance to listen to our first two episodes, go back and listen to the first two. The first with leaders from our practice innovation team and the second with two of our New York-based partners in Gunderson's licensing, strategic partnering, and commercial transactions practice. I am very pleased to welcome our next guest, Gunderson's Head of Data Privacy, Anna Westfeld. Anna counsels clients on a broad range of U.S. and European data privacy and security issues and has significant experience guiding clients through GDPR and CCPA compliance and advising on model contract clauses, privacy policies, data processing agreements, and global privacy compliance strategies. She also advises on data privacy and security issues in venture capital financings, mergers and acquisitions, and IPOs, which we're seeing more of lately. Anna, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Great. So let's go ahead and dive right in. We're definitely going to allow our listeners to take advantage of your expertise in both EU and US privacy law. So I'd I'd like to start with the first movers in more scrupulous regulation, the EU. Can you give our listeners the latest developments of the EUAI Act and how companies should think about these first steps in global regulations? Yeah, absolutely. So just a few weeks ago, the EU AI Act cleared a really important hurdle when it was approved by the EU Parliament. So next step now is that it goes into tripartite discussions between the EU Parliament, the Commission, and the Council. And this means that it could actually be passed into law in early 2024. There is a two-year transition period before it will come into force. So we're looking at 2026 before it is fully in force. But given the broad scope and extensive obligations of this law, we're really advising our clients who are in the AI space to start assessing what they need to do at this time. And as a reminder, this law has some very, very broad scope and extraterritorial effect. It applies to almost anyone who places an AI system on the EU market or puts it into service in the EU. And it doesn't matter if you are physically located or established in the EU or anyone that uses in the EU the output of an AI system. We're also paying a lot of attention to this act because the potential fines are incredibly large. Mm. They can reach up to 40 million euros or 7% of global annual turnover that is in the latest draft of this act. Well, that's even more than the GDPR penalties. It's even more than the GDPR penalties. And 
Interestingly, there may actually be stacked fines under both the AI Act and the GDPR if you are dealing with personal data and there is a violation under the GDPR as well. So really an enforcement action could be existential for a company, even if it has no EU presence. Wow. And in the US, we're behind, but definitely paying attention. And we're certainly seeing a bipartisan push toward regulating AI. And specifically, it's just been a couple months now since Sam Altman gave his historical testimony before Congress. And while we're slower to adopt regulations, certainly of this magnitude here in the U.S., it seems that a Congress is listening. And one thing that really struck me, which is undeniably true, is as he stated, if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. And the other point he made, which I think resonated with a lot of those listening, was that it is important to understand that GPT-4 and its next iterations, it's a tool, it's not a creature, and it's a tool that people have great control over. So I want to ask, I know you had a chance to listen to it. How did Sam Altman's testimony on privacy, accuracy, and dis information align with the EU AI Act. What I think is really interesting with this testimony is that here we have the head of probably the most famous AI company right now, and he's still calling for AI to be regulated. And wants AI companies to have a seat at the table where that regulation is being formed, which actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Mm-hmm. He really emphasized the harm that AI can cause to the world, as you mentioned, He brought up, for example, the effect of misinformation on democratic elections, which seems like a really urgent risk at this time. He didn't necessarily come up with a risk-based framework the way the AI Act does. And there are some open questions from this testimony. One really important question that I think is as of yet unresolved, but I thought Sam Altman had some really interesting thoughts on it, is which agency or who should be regulating this? Who should be enforcing Mm -hmm. if we do get an EU regulation or an AI regulation? There's a lot we don't have agreement on in the US when it comes to regulation, but we do have a lot of bipartisan support for the need to regulate. We just don't really know the who, how, and when of regulation. And Sam Alton's suggestion is for an agency specifically tasked with AI regulation, then this could be a U.S. agency or even a global agency that uses a model of issuing licenses to four of the most powerful AI systems. And it would also have the authority to take those licenses away and show compliance with safety standards. And what I thought was really interesting is that he brought up the International Atomic Energy Agency as an example mm. of when this has been done before. Uh, that's right. And that's an interesting idea to treat AI as a similarly powerful and destructive technology coming from the head of an AI company. Mm-hmm. The, of course, this idea of a licensing model is not something that is universally accepted in the industry. There are a lot of commentators who feel that it would stifle innovation, in particular if this is just a U.S. model, not a global one. If we have this licensing requirement in the U.S., whereas our competitors do not have that. Certainly the possibility of stifling innovation among startups who may not have 
the funds, if you will, to do what is needed to immediately come within uh, compliance to get the licensing. And you just think about the power that that agency could wield in this trillion dollar industry that is the artificial intelligence industry in general. I think that's a really important point that I think hasn't been evaluated enough. It's the anti-competitive effect of this, because you would possibly create some significant barriers to entry for the smaller companies. And as we've seen, a lot of innovation is coming from smaller companies here. OpenAI is still a small company. We will be looking at the very large companies that have huge teams that can handle all these requirements and deal with the regulators. Mm -hmm. The smaller players, the early stage companies wouldn't necessarily be able to even enter this space. Yeah. And as we've reminded listeners to this podcast before, it's not as if the laws of last century can't possibly apply to put some safeguards around the activities, whether they're AI powered or generative AI powered activities. And so there, you know, we are seeing some regulatory activity occurring with the FTC, for example, and there are laws in place to help mitigate some of the issues. Can you, Anna, talk to our listeners about what you're seeing and how current regulations are helping smooth out the landscape? Yeah, absolutely. So so you mentioned the FTC, and that is really where most of the focus is right now when it comes to enforcement, even though, as we've talked about, there is a lot of movement in Congress on regulating AI. The fact is that a federal AI law is likely a long way off. The FTC has made it very clear that they have the tools available to enforce against AI companies using existing law without the need for a specific AI law. And the current FTC is very, very aggressive. Mm -hmm. So this is where we see companies pay a lot of attention. It's really the consumer protection angle here, where we're looking at AI tools that are deemed to engage in unfair or deceptive practices or unfair methods of competition. For example, if they're making false claims about the kind of AI that they use or how it works, or even if a company has built an algorithm with data that was obtained under deception, we've even seen the FTC order companies to delete the algorithm or the model that was built with unlawfully obtained data, not just deleting the underlying data. So really, the FTC has some very, very powerful tools under the FTC Act, and it has made very clear that AI is a focus. There has been a lot of enforcement this year. Uh, There is a lot of enforcement ongoing, and I think we will see even more settlement enforcement actions from the FTC in the AI space. So that's really where we're seeing most of the focus. I'm not necessarily seeing it smoothing out the landscape. It's interesting seeing the FTC wielding its power and putting itself in the position of the AI regulatory agency here. As I mentioned before, this is still unresolved, which agency really should be the best place agency to enforce a federal AI regulation. But the FTC seems more than willing and able to do it at this time. So it's something that we're watching really closely. That's great. And I think that's an important lesson uh, that between the UAI Act and some of what we're seeing in terms of activity by the FTC, one of the lessons that employers should take away when it comes to 
future work, there are legal risks associated with the use of generative AI, whether there is a U.S. law in place or not at this time. And and I know we've talked about some of the privacy risks, but I think understanding the regulatory landscape and then getting the right guardrails in place to ensure that a company and its workforce comply with laws and regulations will be a difficult yet really critical challenge for employers to take on. Yeah, absolutely. And as we've talked about, there are existing laws in the U.S. where we see enforcement in the AI space. And similarly in Europe, even though the AI Act is not currently enforced, there have been a lot of enforcement actions under the GDPR. We've seen, for example, the Italian Data Protection Authority banning the chatbot replica, that is a chatbot from a U.S. company, due to GDPR violations, and also issuing a temporary ban on ChatGPT in Italy for Italian users while it was examining potential GDPR violations or issues. So we're really seeing globally that existing laws are being used to enforce in the AI space. While policymakers and lawmakers are trying to figure out how to best create an AI-specific law. When it comes to generative AI and protection of privacy rights, I know that you've been advising a lot of our clients about how important it is that their workforces understand the input of confidential or sensitive information, including personally identifiable information into an AI tool could result in the disclosure of such information to third parties. And you've also been advising a lot of chief information security officers in this regard, sort of putting out their generative AI policies, finding ways to verify compliance. Do you want to talk a little bit about just the role of the chief information security officer, how that's evolved and generally what advice you're giving employers? Yeah, absolutely. The use of generative AI has to be considered from the privacy angle, but it's really much, much broader than that because you're dealing with data beyond personal data. You're dealing with proprietary commercial information. You're dealing with your code, potentially your very, very proprietary code base. And you're also, of course, dealing with external threats. So that's really high on the priority list for the chief information security officer or the CISO. So when I talk to organizations, I really make sure that the relevant people come to the table and discuss this and help create the policies. It's really difficult to entirely ban the use of generative AI for an organization. Employees can always use it on their own devices. And I think a much better approach is to educate and train and put some guardrails around it. Yeah. Some concerns that we've seen for CISOs is when employees put proprietary code, for example, into a generative AI tool, because it's really powerful in finding vulnerabilities or suggesting changes. It's a really, really great tool for that. But if you don't understand how your input is being used, you risk putting out a roadmap for a third-party malicious actor to hack you, or just even disclosing your confidential information, which we've seen happen for some of the largest companies in the world. We also see CISOs concerned with 
employees pulling code from generative AI tools from this third-party code without proper vetting procedures or proper review procedures. And this goes into a proprietary code base that could be issues of vulnerabilities and, of course, also the concern that you are using third-party proprietary code. So really, the CISO now also has to be expert. They have to really understand how this is being used throughout the organization and where the risks are and how you can address those and how to train your employees to use this in a responsible way. Excellent, Anna. I couldn't agree more. Let's maybe switch gears a little bit and sticking with sort of training of the workforce, but I want to talk about your expertise in cybersecurity, privacy, and deep fakes. And I guess before we talk about deep fakes, some of our listeners, I'm going to go ahead and offer a definition unless you want to, Anna, but it occurred to me. No, go ahead. Okay. All right. So for our listeners, when we're talking about deep fakes, as we're discussing, as we will be discussing here today, we're really talking about using artificial intelligence to generate, alter, or manipulate digital content in a manner that is not easily perceptible by humans. So you have been out there warning employers, warning organizations, and it's such a just in general societal concern, but about the infiltration of deep fakes and social engineering. While this isn't the most novel thing, this has We've certainly seen that with generative AI, it is not as time-consuming or expensive to generate deep fakes. Do you want to share with our listeners some of what you've seen in terms of heightened threats of social engineering and infiltration of deep fakes? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, this isn't particularly novel impersonation has always been used in dealing information or property. But with these AI tools that create synthetic media, such as text or voice or images, it's now much, much easier to create something incredibly sophisticated. And it is also much more available. Really, the barrier of entry to become a, <laughs> a malicious actor has been lowered significantly with the proliferation of generative AI tools. And I think one of our society's greatest challenges going forward is that we're not equipped to detect AI. We're not sufficiently equipped to detect AI. We're really fundamentally too trusting. Yeah. And this is a problem because we fall victim to impersonations and deceptions and misinformation again and again. But interestingly, to put a more positive spin on it, we also now have the opportunity to leverage AI to develop very sophisticated AI detection tools. Yes. And just as we're seeing an arms race in getting in on the generative AI space, we're also seeing a bit of a tandem arms race to develop AI detection software, anti-AI tools. So that's something I think we will see companies having to deploy to protect their employees and to protect their organization in the future. And some examples of what we've seen here, there is the typical attack that an organization uh, can experience where an HR employee is being contacted by someone impersonating senior level management asking for, for example, copies of all employee W-2s with social security numbers. This has happened a lot. It's not something new. 
It was often done through an email impersonating senior management. But now we have a much more sophisticated way of doing it. We mm-hmm. could have a scenario where there is someone on the phone that really sounds like the person you're reporting to. And you're just not equipped with the tools to detect that that is a deep fake, someone impersonating senior level management. Mm-hmm. It could be a request to redirect a wire transfer to a scammer. And it could be done by someone who really sounds like your boss. And if you don't have the right tools in place to detect that, it is really easy to fall victim to something like that. There's no question that already the impact of deep fakes on corporations, it's been felt to the tune of tens of millions of dollars that we know of (laughs) stolen through these Definitely. Impersonations. Another way we've seen generative AI use, in particular in social engineering attacks, is that you can use it to learn a lot about your victims. So you can create a highly targeted attack that just wasn't really possible in the past with information that was publicly available. Yeah. And these attacks that are created through generative AI typically don't have the telltale signs that we have learned to spot, such as grammar mistakes or typos. They can also look like really convincing password reset requests, mm-hmm. a different level of sophistication that we're seeing now. Yeah, well, to the point you made earlier, the good news is that we can use some of these same deep neural networks and generative neural networks for good, right? They're being used for nefarious purposes. There's no question about it. But the good news is that we can also use these same networks for safety and protection. And there's now deep learning networks that can put imperceptible uh, watermarks on audio files. For example, that's something I just recently learned that a company Resemble AI has been successful achieving. And the idea being that organizations can detect if the audio is real and then can also see if proprietary data that it's put out there because it knows it's proprietary data because of the watermarks that are imperceptible to humans. There might be able to, as you said, it, it's certainly an arms race. So as much as these tools are being developed for harm, they're being developed for good. One example, and I've told this a few times, but I think it's just a good example back from 2020 was the bank. And I want to say 2020 because my goodness, look how different everything is and how easier and less expensive it is now than then. But even back then, there was a bank manager who was in Hong Kong, received a call from a man, and he instantly recognized the voice. It was a director who he'd spoken with many times before. And the director had good news of an acquisition that the company was going to make. And so he just needed for this employee to go ahead and authorize the bank to transfer 35 million. And it really did sound legitimate and began making the transfers. He didn't know that it was part of fraudsters using this deep voice technology to clone the director's speech. And As you said, there is a great, great concern at how much easier this will become and how much more imperative it is to not just rely on the training of employees to detect 
phishing schemes. The phishing schemes are much, much more elaborate now. And then you add video, talk about video. I don't know if you or some of our listeners have seen the deep fake video that was created by MIT students uh, showing President Richard Nixon consoling America after a failed moon landing. Did you see that one by any chance? I have not seen that one, but I've seen some other incredibly convincing videos. And this was really front and center when Sam Altman testified before Congress, because they started that hearing with a deep fake audio clip of a senator. Yeah. This is something where we all have to get better at questioning whether something is real or not. And I just don't think we really have that sense developed quite yet. So we are, as you mentioned, we can't just rely on training. We really have to leverage technology to help us here. Absolutely. Well, I will remember to share that video with you. I mean, it, it's so full of emotion from a grieving president, even though it is obviously fake. We all know that never happened. Let's talk for a minute about the legal field and how has the rise of generative AI complicated matters in deep fakes even further or how might it? In the legal field, what do you mean with a... Well, this questioning, so this questioning, and maybe we're not aware, but once misinformation is out there and now we have these deep fake audio and we have these deep fake video, I think great concern is what does this mean for the legal field. When you have these extremely realistic deep fake videos, they can be used for purposes like undermining our judicial systems and threatening global stability. It could be used to fabricate evidence in courtrooms or, as you alluded, just manufacturing propaganda misinformation. No, I was just going to agree with you that that is, I don't really know if we're equipped to deal with that in the legal system quite yet. If we, in a legal proceeding, arguing over whether something is real or not, that would be really interesting to see how that will play out when even can't necessarily trust the video recording that is submitted into evidence because it could be fabricated through AI or it could be real. I think this will really change how we approach evidence in the legal system. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think when we look at the inseparability of global security, judicial integrity, and economic prosperity, it does make risk of deep fakes and the damage that can be done particularly concerning. So, gosh, I don't want to end this episode on such a dark note, but at the same time, (laughs) I do think that it's important that we make listeners aware of how very real these threats are. Anything that we haven't discussed on this podcast that you would like to share with listeners? And then I'm going to take you into a what we call quick fire challenge. Yeah, I think one really interesting concept that I would like to see more of in the U.S. We do have this concept in the EU AI Act, and I think something we really could benefit from here is the concept, as we're trying to figure out now what regulation should look like and how companies and regulators should approach this, we could really benefit from the concept of a regulatory sandbox where 
AI can be tested in a controlled environment and where we have an open dialogue between companies and regulators. Mm. We're seeing some really important strides here. For example, Sam Altman being invited to testify mm-hmm. uh, before Congress and the continuing dialogue between industry and lawmakers. I think there is a lot more we could do there. We could really make sure that the lawmakers understand the technology and have a chance to really see it in a controlled environment. If we had an opportunity for companies to consult with regulators before they put something on the market, Mm -hmm. that could really help protect individuals, but also help promote innovation in the U.S. What an excellent point, Anna. And I remember years ago when uh, questions were raised with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, sort of putting out there this idea of a sandbox won't it be possible to test out some AI-powered HR tools and be able to have that dialogue, have some protections in place? And my recollection is that employers were warned the laws that currently exist will remain in (laughs) existence. And so if there is some sort of a adverse impact as a result of use of these tools, then employers will suffer the consequences. But I completely agree with you that what is needed is more communication, safe spaces, continuing the discussion, having more Sam Altman's come to Congress to testify so that we can really learn. And it's more critical than ever with how quickly the landscape is changing. Right now, we have this great opportunity to create a balanced and reasonable law that works for industry, but also protects individuals. And my thinking there with really developing the concept of a dialogue and regulatory sandbox is to avoid having a law that is just exercise in bureaucracy and paperwork. If we end up with an AI law where it's just a matter of filling out a lot of forms where companies perform risk assessments, but they're really just a paper pushing exercise, that doesn't really help anyone in society. And I think that is not what we're looking for here. So Great point. to end on a more positive note, I think we really have, we have a fantastic opportunity here to continue the dialogue between industry and lawmakers and really focus on creating a law that really meets these objectives of promoting innovation in the U.S. and globally and also protecting individual rights and our interests in society as a whole. So basically, my point there is I really want to get away from laws that just encourage more paper pushing. I don't think those benefit anyone. Fantastic. And we're going to end on that great note. Couldn't agree with you more. And now will you do a little quick fire challenge with me? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Whom would you prefer to go against in court? Elle Woods, Atticus Finch, or Matt McConaughey in The Lincoln Lawyer? <laughs> well, as a transactional lawyer, I really like to stay away from being in court. <laughs> so I think I would probably rather go for a drink with any of those three, uh, probably with a slight preference for Elle Woods, because I think that would be really entertaining. She would have some great stories to tell. <laughs> I agree. If you could implement one rule that every AI development project must follow, what would it be? I would really, having seen in the last, especially in the last few years, just how 
AI models are not neutral. They're really, if the underlying data is biased or flawed, the output is going to be biased or flawed. I really wish that all of these AI projects would pay more attention to cleaning the underlying data, really addressing any bias and putting safeguards in place around there. Because I really think that that is such such a risk for society and it's just a huge detriment to individuals when we have these machine learning models, but they are not neutral. They are not unbiased. They really are just as flawed as the underlying data. So I would like to put more requirements there around cleaning the data, ensuring that bias and discrimination is reduced. That would probably be the one thing I would choose. I think that's an excellent rule. Thank you, Anna, for joining us. As we continue to receive more regulatory updates in the privacy space with AI, Anna's team is working diligently to provide counsel and education to clients that are eager to leverage these powerful tools with privacy and security at the core of their development. We look forward to hearing more from your team, Anna, as these developments continue to come out at a rapid pace. Thank you so much. Thank you, Natalie. This was fun and it was my pleasure to join. Wonderful. And thank you listeners for joining us. Bye-bye. You've just listened to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series is brought to you by Gunderson Detmer, the world's number one law firm representing venture capital funds and high growth companies. Join Natalie Pierce on our next episode as she and her guests help prepare your organization for the future. Please subscribe to the Future Work Playbook.